We are so glad that you are connected with the body of Christ at Lakeshore today. It's a joy for us to be together. Several years back in the late 80s and early 90s, there was a basketball coach at LaSalle University who was known as Speedy, Speedy Morris. He got the nickname Speedy because he was the slowest guy in his high school class. That's kind of how it goes sometimes. But Speedy was the coach there, and they were having, for the first time in a long time for that school, they were having a really, really good basketball season for their men's basketball program. And they were beginning to get a lot of attention and everything. Well, one morning, he's getting ready to head up to the school, to his office there, and he's upstairs at his house shaving. And the phone rings, and it's back when they had the landline, and the phone rings, and the wife answered the phone. And then she yelled up to her husband, Speedy, uh, Sports Illustrated is on the phone for you. He, he got so excited, he thought, maybe finally we're going to get the recognition that I've been working so hard for us to get. Uh, we're, we're gonna, this, this is a great uh, sports magazine, nationally known, known all around the world. This is going to be great for our program. And he cut himself shaving. He was so excited. He had blood running down. And he starts down the stairs. He hasn't even wiped off his face. And he trips and trips down the stairs and hurts himself falling down the stairs. And finally, he kind of crawls over to the phone and picks it up and says, Hello? And the voice on the other end says, is this Speedy Morris? He said, yes, it is. And the, phone, the person on the other end said, well, Mr. Morris, for just 75 cents an issue, we could give you a one-year subscription to Sports <laughs> Illustrated. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how we can be going along and things could be going really well? And for a moment, we're content with it. But as soon as we think there's more that we don't have yet, or something else we could get that we don't have, something else somebody else has that we don't have, all of a sudden we're not content anymore. I mean, just moments before, he was so content and happy with the program. And in just a matter of minutes, he was discontented thinking, we need to get this too. We need that recognition. We need that to be in that magazine. I think all of us live that way pretty consistently. We... We have moments where we are really content, but then we have those things that come up and stir up that discontentment in our lives. We've been in this series called Navigating the New Normal. And in this series, we've been looking at Paul's letter to the church at Philippi and how Paul teaches how to live life under the new normal circumstances he was in and the early Christians were in. This was totally new for everybody. And they were struggling with it. And he was trying to give, a, give guidelines to Christ followers on how to live life in the new normal they were facing. Well, of course, we're in a new normal with lots of things we don't like and restrictions we don't enjoy and all of those things. But we've been learning about how to manage well in our new normal as Christ followers. And today we're going to be focusing on a passage that is, again, a familiar one to a lot of people. It's found in Philippians 4, if you want to turn there, uh, beginning with verse 10. In this passage, he really emphasizes how we as Christ followers can learn to have contentment in all circumstances. Wouldn't that be great to be able to have? Last week we looked at peace, right? We need to have peace. Well, part of peace is learning to be content in all circumstances. So let's pick up again, verse 10. He says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content. You hear that? Listen to his words. I've learned to be content. What a great statement to be able to make. What 
whatever the circumstances. That's the key. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Where is he at when he's writing that? He's in prison. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a guard. He says, I've learned to be content in any circumstance, any situation, even this one. Okay. Whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. He says, with Christ's help, I can, I've learned the secret. I know how to be content no matter what's going on in my life. And it's a secret we all need, don't we? And if we can learn this secret as Christ followers and we can demonstrate it to the, those who aren't yet Christ followers, then we can show them Christ gives us something that you would love to have too. You can find it in him, Christ, just like we have found it in Christ. What a great thing to be able to share with those who do not yet know Christ as Savior. So I want to talk about here, I want to start with four enemies of contentment that are revealed to us in Scripture. Paul talks about some of these and other Scriptures talk about this. Four enemies of contentment that, that keep us or stir, up, stir us up even when we were content. It stirs us up and makes us discontented again. Four things, four enemies. The first one is unrealistic expectations. Unrealistic expectations. What if I had decided as a young man that the only way my life would be meaningful would be to play in the NBA? Right? But what if I had decided that? And my life was just not going to be fulfilling unless I could do that. Now, there's, there's a possibility I could have played in the NBA. But the chances are so, so, so small. Right? That if I based my contentment in life on being able to do that, that's just pretty unrealistic, isn't it? I mean, I mean, God did not, uh, he, he blessed me with being vertically challenged, if you haven't noticed. So it would be tough. It would be tough for me to do that. So instead of letting that destroy my contentment, what I have to do is have different expectations with the way God made me, with the way he gifted me, with the way he called me to certain things. I need to get rid of the unrealistic expectations and understand God's plan and purpose for me was not that it was something else and because I know God loves me here's what I know about his expectations for me they're always better than the ones I would have had always and we need to know that too you see unrealistic expectations always lead to disillusionment they always lead to disillusionment we get mad we get upset we go around angry because we have expectations that are not realistic um I'll give you another example. Uh, if you have children, how many of you are parents raising kids right now? Yeah. Teachers, you got classroom full of kids or whoever can be there now if you're meeting in your, in your space. Okay. Do you think every child is just going to be perfectly behaved all the time? No, I hope not. That's an unrealistic expectation. These are children we're talking about. And children are going to mess up and they're going to, they're going to be too loud sometimes and they're going to break things and they're going, to, they're going to not put everything back every time when they get it out. That's, that's what children do. If you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to be so frustrated all the time. That's what unrealistic expectations do. It, it leads to disillusionment. You start thinking they're bad kids just because they're normal kids. Right? You start thinking that there's 
They're, they're, they're just not good kids at all, just because they mess up and don't always follow every rule perfectly all the time. It causes disillusionment. Uh, I try to talk to couples before they get married when I'm doing their wedding to not have unrealistic expectations in marriage, right? Uh, the dating scene, uh, honestly, does not at all really prepare you for married life, okay? Uh, it just doesn't. Uh, and living together without being married does not prepare you for marriage. It doesn't. Those are two different things. And, and married life is something where you see every bit of the good, the bad, and the ugly, and everything in between. I mean, it's there. And it's going to come to the surface over time if you didn't see it before. And, and here's the thing. It's not just there. It's there the next day, too. And the next day, too. And the next day, too. So if you went into it thinking, this is just going to be great all the time. And we're always going to have these warm, fuzzy feelings for each other. Every moment of every day is just going to be so great. If you go into it with that, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to be disillusioned. Maybe very quickly or certainly over time, you're going to be disillusioned with what marriage ended up being like. Now, don't get me wrong. Marriage is a beautiful thing, a wonderful thing. But part of what makes it the beautiful thing God designed it to be is how we choose to love even when we don't have our expectations met. That's what holds every marriage together. It's the only thing that can hold a marriage together because everybody's going to have some of that in their marriage. Everybody. So if you're not willing to love even when you don't have your expectations met, then you can't stay in a marriage very long. You can't. It will not last. Same thing is true with friendships and, and job situations, you know, careers that you're in. Uh, everybody says, well, uh, I just don't like my job. I think I need to go to another job. And, and I understand sometimes a job change is necessary and it's a good thing. But guess what you're going to inherit at the new job? Some things that don't go the way you want them to go. Things that don't happen the way you want them to happen. Not every employee, not every supervisor, not every employee is going to do what they ought to do, what you expect them to do all the time. And you can be disillusioned at any job if you are expecting it to be everybody's doing what they ought to do all the time. What about your church? What kind of unrealistic expectations do you have for your church? One thing about the church you need to understand is, is we're not a museum for saints. We are a hospital for sinners. It's two different things. And if you are have expectations that it's going to be saints, just a museum for saints where everybody there is going to do the right thing all the time, then you're going to be very disillusioned with church. But if you understand the church's role is to deal with and, and connect them to Christ, uh, un, uh, imperfect people, people that have failed in life, and we're trying to connect them to Christ so that they can grow into the image of Christ and serve in the name of Christ. When you understand that's an ongoing process all the time for everybody, then you don't have unrealistic expectations for those people in your church. I say this all the time. If we design Lakeshore to function only in the way that Pastor Randy is happy with all the time and only do what I like all the time, this church would have stayed very, very small. In fact, it would have declined from the 40-something we started with down to just me and my family probably. And some of my family wouldn't have kept coming. That's just the truth. If it was just designed for me, it's never supposed to be designed for any of us, by the way. It's supposed to be designed for those we have not yet reached. That's what it's supposed to be designed for. 
So we need to understand that when we have unrealistic expectations, it can lead to disillusionment. In Matthew 6, 34, Jesus said this, Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So what does he say each day is going to have? Enough trouble of its own. Don't expect it to be different than that. That's an unrealistic expectation. You're going to be disillusioned as a Christ follower if you don't understand every day is going to have some trouble in it. Every single day. I say this, I mentioned it recently, again, this ain't heaven yet. We're not, we're not there yet. We're in a fallen world under the curse of sin, and in this world, every day, what are you going to have some of? Some trouble. So don't have unrealistic expectations. In John 16, Jesus told his followers, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace, okay? In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You see, the way you get through that is have, you have realistic expectations. I expect to have trouble in this world, but I also have the expectation that Jesus has overcome the world, and in Christ I can too. That's the realistic expectation. And that's not talking about everything being perfect here. It's talking about the expectation of heaven and what God has waiting for us there. That's the only place where there's going to be that perfection that lives up to that expectation. So, the next, second... Uh, enemy of contentment is unfair comparisons unfair comparisons they always lead to envy Uh, I know people that can be perfectly happy until they get on Facebook and they see posts of people that seem to be you know they're celebrating a new car or look at my new house or look at this party we were at or you know and, and they always post the picture to be just the ideal situation right and they sometimes will even add a filter to it so they look even better than they actually ever look in real life right so they've got themselves filtered they've got the picture filtered they've got everything looking just so some people are really good at this I mean they they are Facebook artists right I'm not one of those people but some people do that really well and it looks like such an ideal life You see, social media, I think, has done more to cause discontentment than anything else in our lifetime. I really believe it has. Because what happens is is we start comparing our life, our situation. If we took a picture of where we're at right now, it wouldn't look anything like that. And so it causes us to envy what other people, we think other people have. And behind a lot of those beautiful pictures is oftentimes a lot of pain and hurt and destruction, and division. But they don't put that in the pictures. You don't see the things they're actually dealing with behind the scenes. Because in this world, every single person's going to have some what? Trouble. Every day's got enough trouble for its own. And they, it's true for those pig, the people in the picture, and it's true for you. So it can lead to envy. Jesus told a parable in Matthew 20 uh, of the workers in the vineyard. Uh, I'm just going to share a little bit of it. What he had done, he, went, uh, he tells about a guy that went out early in the morning and hired some people to go work in his fields. And uh, then he went out and hired some more later on that morning. And then he hired some more early that afternoon. And then he hired some more just a couple hours before quitting time. And it came time for them to get paid. Here's what it says in verse 9. The workers who were hired about five in the afternoon came and each received a denarius. Now the people he had hired that morning, he agreed to pay how much? A denarius. The people he hired midday, what did he agree to pay them? A denarius. He told everybody they would get paid a denarius when he hired them. Okay. It says in verse 10, So when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. 
All right, so they saw what was happening. Those people who only worked a couple of hours got paid what they had agreed to work all day for. All right, it says in verse 11, it says, but each one of them also received a denarius. When, when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. Those who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them, am I not, be, am I being, uh, am I not being unfair to you, friend? Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? You see, when they agreed to work for denarius, weren't they content with that? If they were, or they wouldn't have gone to work that day. They agreed that would be a good pay for what they were about to do. They agreed they were, they were content with that until they got envious that somebody that didn't work as long as them got paid the same amount. You see how it can create this discontentment in our lives? This, this idea that we're comparing all the time. You can be perfectly happy with your house till you go visit a friend. And boy, they've got a nicer house than you do. You can be perfectly happy with your car until you see the commercial of somebody driving a car that, oh, is so much better than your car, right? Perfectly happy with your job until you find out somebody else is getting paid more than you with another company for doing practically the same thing, right? Why wouldn't my boss pay me that much too? But you agreed to work for that, remember? That's why I'm so disillusion with athletes sometimes who agree to a contract and as soon as somebody else signs for more than they're getting paid that plays the same position especially all of a sudden they have to renegotiate their contract they're not happy anymore even though they agreed to play for that amount when they got their contract you see that's what it does to us it makes it this comparison game causes discontentment a lot of the problem with the comparison game is is there's no way for you to compare fairly to know anything about all the details of that other situation or that other person's life or the employees thought behind what he's doing or the employers thought about what they're doing there's no way for you to know how to compare that only God knows all the details you don't I don't we're not equipped we're not in a position to make a fair comparison because we don't have all the information that God has we don't know all the the wisdom of God in that Proverbs 14.30 says this, A heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. If you let envy live in your heart and mind, it will destroy you. It will rob you of all peace, all joy, all contentment. If you let envy dwell in your heart or mind. Oftentimes, that which you're envious of is not nearly as good as you thought it was anyway, if you knew all the details behind it. Well, the third enemy of contentment is unnoticed blessings. These are all connected to each other. There's no way you can have one without the other. In most cases, they all are part of it. Unnoticed blessings, and that always leads to complaining. When you don't notice the blessings that you already have, it leads to complaining. Again, if you're being comparing all the time, if you're... If you're if that's how you're living life and you have unrealistic expectations, then what happens is, is you don't even realize the blessings that you do have. You're not paying attention to how blessed you already are. And if you don't really acknowledge your current blessings, there's no way you're ever going to experience long-term contentment. 
That's all always going to be based on getting one more thing, getting one more thing, getting a little more money, getting another car, getting a new house. Whatever it is, your contentment is always going to be based on one more thing. But once you've had it for a little while, what happens? Then that one more thing is not keeping you content anymore either. Because you don't even stop to think how blessed you already are right now. You're already so blessed. In fact, every one of us sitting in the room, I know there's challenges, I know there's struggles, but just the fact that we're living in the United States of America makes us really blessed people. It really does. I know this country's got problems, but it, I, I heard this the other day, I love it. It's the only country so great, people that hate it won't leave. Isn't that true? People that promised they were going to leave didn't. And they're saying they're going to again if certain things happen, right? That's how blessed we are. That this country is so great. People aren't trying to sneak into any other country. Like they are America. Let's remember how blessed we are. Unnoticed blessings always lead to complaining. That's why I remember in Philippians 4, we looked at it last week, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Always remember to include thanksgiving because you are noticing how blessed you already are. Well, the fourth enemy of contentment is uncontrolled ambition. And that always leads to restlessness. Restlessness. You're just never, you're always, you're always trying to get that next thing. You're always looking for something else. You're never enjoying where you are right now because you're always thinking about the next thing. It says in James 3.16, For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every, every evil practice. You know, what leads to every evil pra uh, practice in this world? Uncontrolled ambition does. That's what's behind it. Let me, let me explain. One of the greatest plights on our world today is the trafficking of children. And it is widespread. And it is awful. But you know what's behind it? It's just that ambition to get more money. That's the only thing behind it of people who traffic children. They can make a lot of money doing that. Now, that's how sick our culture is. That people will pay big money to have sex with children. But that's where we are in our culture. And they're even trying to normalize it, by the way, legally. And the only thing behind it is that selfish ambition that I want what I want. And I don't care who gets hurt in the process of me getting what I want. You see, a lack of contentment makes you so restless that you will even allow yourself to get involved in things that are just evil to get what you want. That's how serious this is. Well, it's certainly not something that we need to do as Christ followers because in Hebrews 13, beginning with verse 5, he says this. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said, never, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? I love that last part of that. What can mere mortals do to me, right? God's already got that covered too, even if they kill me. He's got that covered. 
right? So I don't have to be afraid, and I need to be free from the love of money because I know God's going to take care of me, and he's got more waiting for me than this world could ever give me, period. I don't have to live a discontented life at all. By the way, when he says be content with what you have now, he's not saying you shouldn't have ambition to improve yourself. To, you know, he's not saying you shouldn't try to advance in your career. He's just saying it shouldn't be such a driving force that it will cause you to choose to do the wrong things to get there. That's what he's saying. It should not have such control over you that you will compromise the values that God wants you to live by in order to get it. Because God has to come above those things and that ambition. So he's saying you need to learn. And here's the thing. We would all enjoy life a lot more if we could learn this because most of us don't enjoy where we are right now because we're thinking, well, once I get that, then my life will good, be good. Once I can get there, once I can achieve that, once this happens, then life's going to be good. Then we can enjoy life. But he's saying if you learn the secret of contentment, you can enjoy life right now. Even while things may get better in the future, you can still learn to have joy and peace and contentment right now with where your life is right now, even with the troubles that you have. So let's close here with three secrets of contentment, okay? Three secrets of contentment. We've already alluded to these a little bit, but I want to cover them in uh, in very specific order here. First, develop a spirit of gratitude. That's where it all starts. That's the baseline for contentment. Developing a spirit of gratitude. Look at Philippians 2.14. Remember that early in this letter? He said this, do everything without grumbling or arguing. How have you done with that this morning? Already, right now. Have you done any grumbling this morning? Already? Arguing with anybody this morning? Some families walk into church, they make themselves put on a smile when they get in the door, but if you could have seen them in the car, right? If you could have just seen them in the car before they got in here, it would have been a different picture. Have you done well with no grumbling or arguing today? You see, that's where we got to start. If we're really thankful, if we really have a, great, a grateful attitude, we don't do so much grumbling and complaining when we're really grateful people. Grateful people don't go around complaining, criticizing, tearing down. They don't do that. Grateful people appreciate where they are, what they have. They realize how blessed they are. He says in 1 Timothy 6, beginning with verse 6, Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. So he's saying we need to understand that if we're grateful for what we have, we're not going to be so driven by the love of money that it causes us to hurt others and hurt ourselves in the pursuit of what we don't already have. Gratitude is the foundational principle for learning the secret of contentment. The second thing is to focus on pleasing Christ, not people. Focus on pleasing Christ, not people. Here's a good question for you. Who are you trying to impress? Think about it for a minute. In your life, who are you trying to impress? Because if you don't know Christ, then you are out there trying to impress people even more so. But if you're in Christ, there's really only an audience of one. 
for you to impress. It's Jesus. I love what Dave Ramsey said. I don't think he made it up, but I, I, he shares it pretty often. He says, we've spent money we don't have to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't like. Right? Isn't that what we do? And most Americans live that way every single day of their lives. Even Christian Americans live that way every single day of their lives, spending money they don't have to buy stuff they don't need to impress people they don't even like. They're driven by that. He's saying, if you ever want to be content and happy in life, you've got to stop doing that. You've got to not make that what's important. Instead, you need to focus on pleasing Christ. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4, Paul said this. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. You see, this part of the letter, Paul is saying thank you to the church at Philippi. Because they've reached out to him and helped him out with his ministry. But he's saying, you know what? I knew you wanted to do that, and I was okay even if you weren't able to. I knew there were things that were keeping you from being able to do that, and that's okay. I was still going to be happy and content. It's all right. Because here's the thing. I'm just going to keep doing the right thing whether anybody else gets behind that or not. Whether anybody else supports that or not. I'm just going to keep pleasing Christ with what I think Christ wants me to do. And if it doesn't impress people around me, I'm okay with that. As long as Christ is pleased with me, that's the driving force of my life. So who are you trying to impress? What's the purpose behind you going to work, getting a paycheck, living where you live, driving what you drive, wearing what you wear? Who are you trying to please? Who are you trying to impress? And all of those areas of your life. You see, if we're driven by the right things, wanting to honor Christ, then he honors those who do that. It doesn't mean he gives you all the stuff. It means he takes care of you, makes sure you have what you need. Which leads to the third thing. That is, it's really the secret is to love people more than things. Learn to love people more than things as a Christ follower. Paul's main thing was, I want to reach everybody we can reach. I care more about people finding Christ than I do about even the fact that I'm in prison right now and could be executed. I still care more about people finding Christ, getting to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's the most important thing in my life. Now, how did Paul learn that? Where did he learn that from? Well, the greatest teacher of all taught us very clearly what we should love in this world. In Matthew 22, verse 34, we find that Jesus is being questioned by a group of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And he says in verse 20, 34 and following, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Okay, so the Pharisees have heard how Jesus has answered their question so well and been so impressive. And now they're trying to come up with another question. They get an expert in the law who, think, who thinks it through. All right, I know every detail about the law. How can we trip him up here and trick him into saying something that obviously the crowd won't agree with? Uh, what question could we ask him? And here's what they came up with. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Because he's talking to an audience here. They're in front of an audience that the law is the supreme thing in their lives. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were all about the law of God. So that, that's their focus. So they're asking Jesus, 
of all the law out there. Now, they probably would have included their own laws that they had made up to, you know, hundreds more in addition to God's law. Of all the laws that are out there, what's the greatest one? You tell us that, the greatest commandment. Jesus replied, you probably know this reply, verse 37. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And you know what? They probably would have been happy with that answer had he stopped there. Because they believed that. They didn't practice it well, but they knew it intellectually. They knew that was the greatest commandment. Loving God's the most important thing. But here's what they had done. They had disconnected loving God from loving others, even the unlovely. They had totally disconnected those two things. They thought it was possible to love God like this without loving others like this. And Jesus makes the connection. He goes on in verse 38. First and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. That phrase like it means it is equal in importance to the first one. So he's saying you can't have the first one without equal importance being put on what? The second one. A second like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Wait a minute. We thought we were loving God like we were supposed to. You know, and, you know, his answer that he made here is an answer that brought them to have to deal with, well, who's my neighbor, right? That was the next question. Well, who is my neighbor then? And Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan in answer to that question. Well, who was the neighbor? The one who helped the person in need. And guess what? In that story, it's a Samaritan. And the Samaritans, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would never have said they loved the Samaritans, ever. They totally disconnected loving God from loving the Samaritans. And yet the hero of the story that he tells to define who the neighbor is, is a Samaritan man. See this idea of racism being solved by laws? You know, by, by changing laws and forcing people to not be racist? It's an impossible thing to do. The only thing that's going to change how people think of other people is to be ruled by the law of love in your relationship with God. Because you can't love God and hate anybody else, period. I don't care what color their skin is. I don't care what their ethnicity is. I don't care where they come from, what their economic status is, where they live, what they drive, or, or any of that stuff, what clothes they wear. None of that has anything to do with it if you're a Christ follower. If you're a Christ follower, the two most important things in your life is loving God and loving others. It doesn't mean you have to agree with them. It doesn't mean you have to support their choices and their lifestyle. It doesn't mean you have to support that. But you don't have any choice on loving them or not loving them. If you're going to be a Christ follower. Because the two greatest commandments for someone that wants to be pleasing to God. Is love God. And love others. And you don't get to pick one or the other. It's, it's a package deal. You have to take both. At the same time. There is no way you can separate those two out. In the teachings of Jesus. So the answer. To people coming back to a place of peace in our country. 
coming back to a place of joy and contentment in our country? The real answer to that is bringing people to Jesus. That's the real answer to the problem. And I'm talking about people that are attending church that have probably never really been brought to Jesus either if they still have division in their heart toward others who aren't like them. There needs to be a total surrender to the law of love and God's word where we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And guess what we do for others? We love them like that too. We love them the way we love God. Because here's the thing God teaches us in his word. Every human being on the face of the planet was created in the image of God. Every single one was created in the image of God. You can't love God without loving those created in the image of God. They go together. Let's pray together. Father, Father, we thank you that, that today we've been reminded that contentment is very possible, that Paul had learned the secret, but the secret started with, started with learning that you are the only one that matters as far as being pleasing. We need to be pleasing to you. That should be the driving force of our lives. And in order to be pleasing to you, We've got to love people more than we love things. We've got to care more about others, regardless of what they look like, where they come from, how they dress, where they live. They're all created in your image, just like we are. And Father, we know that we can only love like that if we have Christ in our hearts. We can't do it by the flesh. We can't just make it happen because we pass a law. Nothing wrong with good laws, but they won't change hearts. You change hearts, Father. We thank you for the power of a love so great that it took Jesus to the cross for us. Help us to learn to love more like Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.